As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. She makes beer. She brings me cheer. I really like that she's here. It's time for Brewing After Hours with Sarah Flora. Beer is like sunshine for the belly. Hi, I'm Sarah Flora. You may know me as Flora Brewing on Instagram and YouTube, where I dive into the technical aspects of making beer. My new podcast, Brewing After Hours, is going to take a different look at the history and stories behind beer. I'm going to bring you a story a week, as well as conversations with homebrewers and professionals in the industry. And of course, we'll be cracking some beers along the way. dive into the history of ancient ales. I'm super interested in this topic. Some of the first beers I was drinking back in college were things like Midas's Touch, which uh, some of you may know is a dogfish head beer that basically is a recreation of an ancient recipe. And they got into all the sciencey stuff in a vessel and recreated it. And since that time, I was super interested in just kind of how ancient cultures, brewed beer, what they called beer, how it's different from what we drink now, and let's get right into it. So beer was probably the first alcoholic beverage ever to be drunk. I mean, it makes sense. All you have to do is leave grain and water and let it ferment, and you pretty much have beer. Uh, probably not the best beer, but, you know, it can get you drunk. Uh, currently, it's the third most common beverage in the world behind water and tea. As a human culture, we've always really appreciated beer, and thank God, or I wouldn't have a career now because I would have to be talking about tea or something, and it's just not as fun. Beer's standing in our culture is so ancient and pinnacle that the word beer comes from the Latin term bibira, which literally means to drink. So if you're saying beer, you're pretty much just saying a drink. So in my research on this topic, I found a lot of great articles, which you guys can find in the description. And one of my favorite tidbits that I found is from a scholar, Max Nelson, and he writes, fruits often naturally ferment through the actions of wild yeast and the resultant alcoholic mixtures are often sought out and enjoyed by animals. Pre-agricultural humans in various areas from the Neolithic period on surely similarly sought out such fermenting fruits and probably even collected wild fruits in the hopes that they would have an interesting physical effect, that be intoxicating, if left out in the open air. There's this theory of the intentional brewing of intoxicants, whether beer, wine, or other alcohol, is uh, supported by the historical record, which strongly suggests that human beings, after taking care of their immediate needs of food, shelter, and rudimentary laws, will then pretty much always pursue some kind of intoxicant, whether it be, you know, alcohol or hallucinogenics or something. You know, it just kind of seems like alcohol is somewhat physiological in our need for it, even though obviously it can uh, have detrimental effects sometimes, but uh, the history of humans wanting to remove themselves from reality in some way kind of goes back to the dawn of man. 
given that, uh, beer is in a ton of ancient cultures. Uh, we're gonna go into a few of them uh, from the Mesopotamian region, which I'm sure most of you have at least some understanding of the breadbasket of Mesopotamia being one of the birthplaces of beer. And then we're gonna go into Europe and even China. There's evidence that the ancient Chinese made beer brewed with grapes, honey, hawthorns, and rice, um, and this beverage was called kui, and that was being made as far back as 7000 BC. Though the first chemically confirmed barley beer, which is what we make now, dates back to 5000 BC in Iran, which is the Mesopotamian region. But there's also some evidence that beer was brewed back in Golden Tipi, which is a archeological site in Iran, um, back as early as 10,000 BCE. So that's basically when agriculture first started. So, you know, you're growing your grain for your bread, but you're also growing your grain for your booze. All right, so let's get into Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is always thought of as the birthplace of beer, you know, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, they're heavy hitters in the beer world. So there's this Sumerian hymn called the Hymn to Ninkasi, which while also praising the goddess of beer Ninkasi, it's a recipe. And this was written down in 1800 BCE. Even in the epic of Gilgamesh, how to drink beer and the celebration of beer is featured. So even back when you're in high school and you're like, what are we learning? Why am I reading this ancient text? This doesn't apply to me at all, but it's literally telling you how to drink, which uh, I guess we need to give our English professors a little bit more credit. So typically, Women were the ones brewing beer. Uh, there's a lot of beer goddesses. Um, there's also beer gods, but ladies uh, typically get more credit for this. Brewing beer was just like baking bread. So it was part of the household duties. Women would be the ones preparing the meals and the beer. The beer the Babylonians were drinking was basically like oatmeal that you would have to suck through a straw. Um, they actually invented straws so that they could drink their beer easier. It's not like they were making one kind of beer either. There was 20 official kinds of beers and they all had different names and they were all different styles. So some of you may have heard of Hammurabi's Code. It was this ancient rule book essentially, eye for an eye comes from. And there was a few laws concerning beer in the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, it mainly had to do with tavern owners and religious figures drinking in normal taverns. But uh, you know, it's crazy that one of the oldest law books specifically mentioned our favorite drink. One of my favorite tidbits I found out in my research into ancient cultures is a lot of them had beer rations. So like you would get your daily amount of beer just to drink from the government. So when I think of Egypt, I think of pyramids, pharaohs, let my people go. You know, one thing I don't think of is beer. And I think if our history teachers taught us a little bit more about how everyone was drinking beer all the time in the ancient world, we would have been a little more inclined to pay attention. The ancient Egypts have a whole religious significance of beer. They believe that brewing was taught to human beings by Osiris also known as the Lord of the Underworld and Judge of the Dead, brother husband to Isis, and one of the most important gods in ancient Egypt. I really love that the Lord of the Underworld was also the god of beer because like, you know, you see all these breweries that have super metal branding and stuff. And uh, apparently that's been going on for thousands of years. So kudos to all you metalheads opening up breweries. You are staying on the true path. So like the Sumerians and Babylonians, they were drinking basically this oatmeal porridge concoction that was alcoholic, which sounds absolutely disgusting. You know, women would brew the beer and then it became more commercial. Men took over. There's actually a really fascinating miniature found in the tomb of Mekitri that showed how an ancient brewery would work. So you have 
the women grinding the grain, a man turning the grain into a dough, and another guy putting the dough into a mash, and then it has their fermenters or crocks to ferment it. And after the fermentation, the beer was poured off into jugs. Someone was buried with this, so it was a huge thing. Uh, there's a lot of tombs that have alcohol buried with the mummies, I guess it would be a mummy. <laughs> One of my favorite stories that I found from Egypt about beer is the popular myth of the birth of the goddess Hathor. The god Ra was pissed that humanity was evil and ungrateful, so he sent Sekhmet to destroy the world, basically. He changed his mind after Sekhmet tried to kill literally everyone, so he had to find a way to stop her. So what Ra did was he dyed a ton of beer red and dropped it in the city. So Sekhmet was wanting to drink this huge lake of blood, essentially, on the path of destruction. So she drinks it and she falls asleep being drunk and wakes up as the goddess Hathor. And the goddess Hathor is a benevolent deity and uh, is the goddess of music, laughter, the sky, and gratitude. So the whole point of this is to suggest people just chill out and drink some beer and it'll make you a better person. And I really think that is quite hilarious. And a wonderful quote that is actually on a temple complex that honors Hathor is, the mouth of a perfectly contented man is filled with beer. So towards the end of ancient Egypt, uh, back when there was Cleopatra's, uh, so Cleopatra number seven lost popularity towards the end of her reign uh, because she implemented a tax on beer. And this is the first tax on beer ever. She taxed the beer so that she could fight Rome, but then you have a bunch of discontented people and Egypt fell to Rome anyway. So just don't screw with people's beers. So speaking of Rome, we're gonna dive into ancient Greece and Rome. Ancient Greeks and Romans were not a huge fan of beer, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know how, because they took over pretty much everyone who is a fan of beer. So they actually considered beer to be more barbaric. You know, they were more into wine and a little hoity-toity about it. There was a saying, which I find hilarious, and I've actually said this in a couple of my videos. They said that beer smelled like a goat and wine smelled like nectar. This makes so much sense though. If you think about wild fermented beer, you can get a goatee flavor and aroma from it. It's basically Bretomyces is what you're getting and that's floating everywhere. So it really makes sense what they're saying, but still, how can you hate beer? Eventually Romans got on board and started brewing uh, on large scale for their military operations. But you know, after, trash-talking beer. We're not even gonna go into that. So we're gonna go to Northern Europe. As we all know, Germans love their beer. They were making it as early as 800 BCE, which is not surprising to me at all. I'm actually surprised it's not much further back. So as with everyone else, uh, the beer was brewed as part of your daily meal and it was the women's work. In time, Christian monks took over brewing and you can actually still find some monasteries that were brewing beer back as early as the 14th century. And like, you can still buy their beer, which I think is insane. How do you sustain something for that long? I mean, the Catholic church, but <laughs> I digress. So the Germans are famous for their beer purity law, the Reinheitsgebot, and this was just a law basically to protect people more than anything. They were afraid that people were gonna sell beer that was not as strong as they say it was. It was not made with the correct ingredients. It could potentially be poison. So this law laid out that you needed barley, water, and hops to make beers. Before then, the hops weren't necessarily a part of beer. Um, they eventually added yeast to this list once they realized it existed because before they were just using the same wooden paddles to stir their fermenting beer and you would transfer your yeast that way. And of course, Germans also got 
a ration of beer daily. I I am an advocate that uh, we need to get back on this uh, beer ration kick. Uh, I, I think the U.S. can use it right now, especially during COVID. I, it'll keep us in our homes. <laughs> okay, so to finish up, we're gonna go to Finland. The Finnish saga of Kalevala sings of the creation of beer devoting more lines to the creation of beer than to the creation of the world. So I'm gonna share some with you. Great indeed the reputation of the ancient brew of Kalu, said to make the feeble hearty, famed to dry the tears of women, famed to cheer the brokenhearted, make the aged young and supple, make the timid brave and mighty, make the brave men ever braver, fill the heart with joy and gladness, fill the mind with wisdom sayings, fill the tongue with ancient legends, only to make the fool more foolish. Which I can fully agree with. I'm excited to introduce our first guest, ancient ales expert, beer archaeologist, professor of Greek and Roman archaeology, art history, Egyptology, Roman history, and anthropology. And he's also the former research and development manager at Avery Brewing behind the Ales of Antiquity series. Hello, Travis Rupp, and thanks so much for joining the show today. What don't you do? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me on. And yeah, I know. I ended up wearing a, a lot of hats over the last several years. And so, and I still kind of wear all those hats, I guess. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got uh, quite the repertoire. Um, oh, thank you. So, uh, you're a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. That's actually my in-laws uh, alma mater. Uh, <laughs> I'm very familiar with Boulder. Um, and I see you just announced a mechanical engineering class that you're teaching called Food and Alcohol in the Ancient World. Tell us more about what made you want to focus on the history of beer. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in regards to yeah, wearing all those hats I've had and things over the years, I didn't ever think that my paths were going to cross like this. Um, I graduated from CU Boulder in 2010, uh, and I was primarily a Roman archaeologist, a Roman art historian at the time. So I was working mostly on second century architecture and sculpture, <laughs> nothing related to beer. Um, but I had, uh, as, go as it goes in the academic world, I was only teaching a couple of classes at, uh, at the beginning. And so um, I got a job at Avery Brewing Company. My girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, so that all worked out <laughs> great. Uh, that uh, she was the one who encouraged me to do it because I'd always been really interested in beer and brewing. I'd been home brewing since I was 19 uh, with my dad, you know. So started way back uh, in the day, and um, I actually started as a bartender at Avery, uh, and then worked my way up pretty quickly. I, I was uh, moved into production about I think it was about eight months or so later. Uh, and worked in production at Avery for about eight years or so. Uh, but while I was at Avery, um, a lot of the, the staff were like, well, you're a teacher, you can teach anything, teach us about beer history. And I didn't have any background in beer history. So they, were, they would throw out these random topics to me um, that they wanted me to explore. And as I did start digging into it more, I started to realize that my world in, acad in academia, which was in the ancient world, there, uh, there just wasn't much written about ancient alcohol production. Uh, and the things that were written, I started to notice were taking some fairly, fairly like sweeping generalizations uh, or making, I should say, some fairly general, uh, sweeping generalizations about what ancient beer might have been like. And uh, being a brewer then at that point and knowing what the brewing process looked like, I decided to start digging into it more deeply. Uh, and in 2015, was really when the aha moment happened. Uh, my wife and I were in Greece and uh, we'd been in, in Turkey and Greece for a little over a month. Um, we were actually on our honeymoon, but we both, she's, a, she's an academic as well, so we can't stop doing research and things like that. And um, I found some pretty firm evidence to support that the Greeks did in fact brew beer, which most books said that it, they didn't. Uh, and at that point, I'm like, I really need to just turn my focus to this. And so since 2015, I'd been working on beer history since about 2012. But in 2015 is when I decided to go all in and really focus on ancient alcohol production and now food production as well with my new course that I'm offering at the University of Colorado. That's fascinating. Yeah, I found out um, when I was doing some research uh, for the story that happens right before this interview, actually, yeah, yeah. there was a uh, very little mention of uh, beer in Greece. 
uh, I, it, I basically read that most of the historical record is having to do with wine and they weren't huge fans of beer in Greece. And I found that really interesting, especially like, you know, Romans conquered everything. Romans were into beer and yeah, it's, uh, it's wild that there's such a gap in the historical record for something that's so prevalent. Absolutely. Totally agree. I mean, that's kind of what, where I got hung up because you look at all these other ancient civilizations that surround Greece. And to your point, you know, the Romans, Romans mass produced beer. It was a big thing in the ancient Near East as well. And I just thought it was very strange that this one area didn't have it at all. And so I started doing a lot of talks, um, a lot of public talks on the, in, uh, for homebrewers as well as for academics and for museums on the topic. And then uh, what was really nice was in 2018, my theory was actually proven by an archaeological dig in uh, northern Greece, uh, where they actually did find an ancient Bronze Age brewery. Um, and I think they're all over the place. And so uh, I'm, I'm continuing my work on that still. So, Yeah, that must be very satisfying oh, to have your theories big proven. Time, because <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of my opponents out there, and there are very many, there are only a couple other individuals that work on ancient beer, um, but they definitely were just they're like, no, it's just way too speculative. And, and then when it was proven, it was a good feeling. <laughs> There's not many people, they're not really bashing my argument anymore, which is nice. So yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so you've also developed beers based on George Washington's preferred porter and a beer brewed at Thomas Jefferson's estate to honor enslaved brewer Peter Hemmings and the other enslaved brewers in Monticello. Uh, what kind of research went into finding out what these beers were like back then? Sure. So one thing that I I do uh, kind of a side project and hopefully down the road I'll get an opportunity to write a book on this is revolutionary American brewing because um, I've always been kind of it's been a hobby revolutionary America I've always found interesting and so I just kind of read that stuff on the side but. Um, what is very different about studying that era of beer is that there's a lot of information. So as opposed to what I normally do, where there's no literary rever references whatsoever, um, or we don't have recipes, or we're scrounging to find the facilities where it was produced, we know kind of all that stuff already from, uh, from the early colonies. But at the same time, uh, we weren't much of a beer producing country when we first formed ourselves, you know, the, the early colonies were primarily consuming rum. Uh, they were still importing a large quantities of beer from England, even during the war. And so uh, the, it, it was kind of, it, it was a multifaceted approach to the study. I did spend quite a bit of time in archives. I worked um, at the uh, Monticello archives uh, for a while, also at the Fred W. Smith archives at Mount Vernon, digging through documents. And the, the cool thing, uh, I didn't really expect to, to have this opportunity, but I was literally handling letters that George Washington wrote, um, or his cousin who was taking care of Mount Vernon wrote to him. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I've, I've held things that are thousands of years old, and I'd never like had this weird feeling like I did when you're holding a document that you know one of the founding fathers actually handled themselves. But um, there's, a, there's quite a bit of evidence in the literature, but uh, because we have so much information in those archives, a lot of people have never looked at it. It gets donated to these archives and then it just ends up in an archive forever until somebody asks to look at it. Mm -hmm. And so as I started to comb through that, I started to realize there was a lot of evidence for beer production. So then I started branching out and uh, talking to other experts in the area, um, Steve Bashore who is the head distiller at Mount Vernon. So he's still distilling whiskey on the estate in the same location that George Washington was doing it. Um, he uh, really helped me out and, and talked me through the process of how he was able to reconstruct the whiskey. And of course, whiskey has to start out as beer originally anyway. So making a lot of connections in the area, but then also just spending a lot of time in the area, um, spent a quantity, a fair amount of time, fair quantity of time in Philadelphia doing research on Benjamin Franklin. And he was quite the porter uh, consumer himself and supposedly, um, arguably, is the one that got George Washington into good porter. Uh, and so the, it's a very multifaceted, uh, kind of eclectic approach to the study. 
Um, by the time I'm done looking at ledgers, talking to experts, spending time on the ground and actually looking at facilities, looking at drawings. I mean, Thomas Jefferson actually was drafting up a brewery. He had planned and built, made plans for a brewery at Monticello, just never came to fruition. So once I put all of that together and then uh, look at a lot of cookbooks, to be honest, because, um, you know, brewing back then was primarily a woman's trade. Uh, and there are a lot of cookbooks and, and housewife manuals and things that had recipes in them. Uh, and you can really layer it back together, piece it back together. Uh, but one thing that uh, I've always tried to stay authentic to is the process. I've, I've been asked before, you know, well, if you're, you just recreate ancient beers, right? So you just find recipes and then recreate them. Well, anybody can do that. Um, it's That's not the hard part. The hard part is the process, um, trying to brew it the way they did with the equipment they had under the conditions they were brewing, storing it the way they stored it, because that's all going to affect the outcome, as you know, mm -hmm. very well. And so um, that's the part that gets really, really interesting. Um, and it was really, honestly, an honor. The last Ale of Antiquity I did at Avery before I left was... Uh, was Monticello uh, to uh, in honorance of, of Peter Hemmings, a man who we don't know what he looked like. Almost nothing we know almost nothing about the man because he was enslaved uh, at Monticello. Yet he was the beer producer. Jefferson gets all this credit for being a brewer, but I highly doubt that the man ever actually brewed a batch of beer um, in his life. There were other people doing it for him, and so. Um, to give a tip of the hat to Peter Hemmings, who actually brewed a really, really interesting beer, uh, a persimmon beer uh, at the estate, um, was a lot of fun. Really, really cool. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's so fortunate that, you know, when you go back to that level, you can uh, actually find the recipes. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, Going back even further, you've recreated beers based on what Vikings were drinking and a beer that was from the Israeli, Palestinian, and Jordanian region around the same time that Alexander the Great was conquering the region. Mm -hmm. um, so there can't be many primary sources when you go back that far in history. Is the process you used to develop the more ancient beers different from the ones that occurred in this millennium? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And yes, it is. Um, where, you know, with, with Jefferson, uh, Jefferson's estate, and then uh, George Washington, even when I recreated uh, the, quote, original India Pale Ale, there's a lot of literary material to reference. And you can, I, you know, you can kind of go into bookworm mode for a long period of time, just looking at references to that kind of stuff. But when you go back that far, um, you know, with the Vikings, there are no Viking cookbooks. Um, you know, the uh, with the actual Viking expeditions uh, that were undertaken happened centuries before anything was written down in ter terms of a food source manual. Uh, and so I rely heavily on archaeological evidence for that. Um, the same is true looking at um, the beer, the, the beer that came from the Palestinian, Jordanian, Israeli region. Uh, in those instances, I'm having to comb through a lot of data that comes from site reports, uh, but also archaeobotanical and archaeochemical analysis because um, we find vessels and we have ideas of potentially what they were being used for. And we're looking for oxalates inside the vessels that would have formed during the brewing process. And they are fairly specific oxalates that don't aren't created during a wine fermentation process, for example. And so we're having to look for that very scientific data to prove that that was what was being produced there. At the same time, uh, I will say that uh, there are instances where I can dive into the literature, though, because there are a lot of terms um, in ancient Hebrew or Latin or Greek that we don't know exactly what they are. There are, you know, ideas of potentially what they might have been. Uh, and in the case of Beersheba, the ancient Israeli beer, I was looking fairly uh, extensively at this one term called, uh, it's, it's, it goes by different translations of shikar or shikru, um, but it's basically this uh, alcoholic beverage that's often ref listed with wine, but it's not wine, otherwise they would just call it wine. And so um, reaching out to uh, scholars, especially when it comes to Hebrew, that know the language better than I do, uh, philologists that can really help me with the etymology, because I know Latin and Greek, but I'm an archaeologist. I don't work on language all the time. 
And so sometimes the language can come in, uh, but really I rely heavily on archaeology and then art history as well. Um, uh, that's the really fun part about the, anthropo the anthropology side that comes in and the art historical side is I love looking for artistry that depicts drinking or uh, floral or flora uh, on vessels, um, you know, whether it be grapes or some kind of barley or other cereals, clearly those items were important to those people enough to put them in the artistry. And I think that's telling of potentially what they were consuming and producing as well. And then the last piece of it is traveling as much as I do and working in these areas. There is a layer of ethnographic study that goes into play as well, because though, you know, when I, when I worked on uh, the very first day of antiquity, Nestor's Cup, which was a Mycenaean beer, um, though that beer dates, you know, some 3,200 or so years ago, you can still go to Greece and experience the culture and realize that a lot of those things that were rooted in the distant past haven't gone away. Um, the way they cook their food, uh, the foods that they focus on, their uh, celebration of the grape and the olive, those are things that have been around for millennia. And studying the ethnographic uh, kind of lay of the land is still very important to trying to reconstruct those ancient beers as well. Um, and so it's a lot of fun. You know, again, it's just multiple layers that come into play to try to recreate it and try to give some uh, individuals a, something tangible from history that they can experience. Um, and I will say with that, uh, I, I will never boast that I can fully recreate an ancient beer. You know, um, I don't think anybody can, to be honest. Uh, and you as a brewer know this, there are just way too many variables at play. You know, you and I could, we could come up with the exact same recipe and both brew it exact same time, try to recreate the conditions. We get together and drink it and they're not going to taste the same. And that's the artistry that's at play with beer because it never, that's why you, it's more than just getting a recipe and recreating it. Mm -hmm. There are all those variables that change it. And so I get as close as I can by recreating the process. Um, but I don't know if I'll ever be able to 100% recreate an ancient beer. Yeah. I always tell people I share all my recipes because even if you brew the exact same beer and hit everything exactly, it's going to taste different no matter what. So Absolutely. you can't, you can't drink the beer that I'm making. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's a living organism, you know, yeah. and it's in, uh, and that's, that's wonderful about it, you know? Yeah. 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 It, it's just so multifaceted. I, that's why I think of why I love it so much. So while trying to recreate some of these ancient ales, which beer did you find to be the most difficult to brew? And what types of hurdles have you faced during the brewing process and any major failures you're open to sharing? <laughs> sure. Um, I can tell you for certainty, the hardest one of the 10 that I did while I was at Avery was uh, 1752 India Pale Ale. And um, people are usually pretty surprised when I say that because they think it's going to be you know, the, the Greek beer or the ancient Mycenaean beer or the Viking beer or something along those lines. Um, and the 1752 India Pale Ale was the hardest because of the process, again, that had to be undertaken. So where when I came back and brewed, for example, the monastic beers after I was with the monks in Italy in 2017, yeah, there were hurdles. There were strange things that we had to enact to recreate this ninth century beer. But that brewing process is pretty much still the, the standard process we undertake today. Um, with 1752 India Pale Ale, I had to figure out how to re recreate the conditions of brewing a beer in London and then shipping it to India in Colorado. So that's a really hard thing to do because um, the reason obviously that IPA became what it was, was it was just pale ale that was shipped to India. That's where the title comes from, right? And so, in order to recreate that process, we did, re we replicated water chemistry from the Thames, all of that stuff. All of the brewing conditions were exactly the same. Recipe was exactly the same as George Hodgson had recorded for his beer at Bow Brewing. And then I had to figure out how to put it in barrels, get it on a boat and sail it for a minimum of three months to India. And so in order to do that, um, what I did, and I spent weeks going through this, I had to figure out how many nautical miles it was, 
um, what the temperature fluctuations were at the ideal time of year, because if India Pale Ale does in fact come from the October ale style that we think it did, most of that beer was produced for export in October. So I had to map what the water conditions were leaving London and then how many weeks it would take to get to the equator, what the gradual increase in water temperature would be to get there, and then the decrease again to go around uh, the Cape of Good Hope, and then again through the Indian Ocean up to India. It was intense because what we did, we absolutely abused that beer. I honestly, I was surprised after I took on the project, I'm like, what am I doing? I've got to sell this beer when it's done. It's going to taste terrible. That's what I thought because we absolutely abused it. I left headspace in the barrels to promote oxidation because I knew that it was going to oxidize like crazy in the journey. And then we, we rocked the barrels. We actually shook them for a three-month period to mimic travel on an open sea. Um, and some of those journeys were two years long. This was just the shortest trip that they could take. And then we did fluctuate temperature as well. So it went through multiple temperature swing, temperature swings from roughly 42 Fahrenheit all the way up to about 86, 87 Fahrenheit and back down. And this is an IPA, right? So this is like absolute no-no all the way around what you're doing. And it was dry hopped, all that. And it was interesting because it was a very interesting study because as we brought the temperature back up to get to the equator, it started fermenting again. It actually did carbonate in the barrel. So I had always been asked, would these beers have carbonated? And I presume they would have, but only if they can get you know a restarted fermentation. Well, we proved it with this study that it can happen. Um, and so uh, by the end of it, uh, it was a very laborious process. I will tell you, there were times where my colleagues that worked with me on the project, we were damn near in tears tasting those barrels because they tasted awful <laughs> when they got to the equator. But I'll be damned if by the time it got to India, they actually, India, right, in Colorado, they actually tasted pretty good. It was a very, very hazy IPA. Not at all what I expected. Not very hoppy, even though the, the IBUs on it were about 40. Um but it's all old world hops, very earthy, dirty, and the oak really took over. And so it was interesting. It was a fun experiment, you know, to, to show that the original IPA is not what we think of as an IPA today. But that was by far the most difficult because it was a lot of manual labor on a daily basis to make sure we stay true to the, the production stream, the process stream. Uh, and then the worry that it wouldn't be palatable when it was done, but it actually was. Um, and it was an interesting piece of education for the public as I talked through kind of what's happened with the trends of hazy IPAs and things for them to see what the original IPAs might have been like. In regards to your other part of the question, failures, most certainly there have been all kinds of things that have gone awry. I mean, um, we, when I did the Viking beer, we got massive sulfur production that we just did not expect because we used baker's yeast, um, because the Vikings uh, most certainly were doing that. We're just using their bread starters to start their uh, beer and um, baker's yeast just acts very, very differently than brewer's yeast does. Um, it stays heavily in suspension. We expected, you know, a lot of the sulfur to blow off and it took a, it took a long time for us to get rid of the sulfur. Um, but people loved it by the time it went away. We just weren't expecting such long tank residency on it. Um, with the, uh, with the ancient monastic beers, there were two pieces to that. One was that I brought yeast back from the monasteries and getting that through customs was a nightmare because they're like, what in the hell is this stuff? You have eight bottles of this slurry. And, um, that was interesting. I did get it into the country though. Um, also, I needed to cut down a juniper tree for that, and I had bought one online through Etsy to be shipped to Colorado, uh, and the guy who was harvesting it broke his leg like two weeks before he was supposed to ship it, and it never came. So I had to go hunting for somebody in a nearby community, and this one guy's like, please cut down this, this juniper tree in my yard. You can have it. So I didn't get one from Sweden. I wanted to. Uh, but I went out, there are pictures of me dragging, me and my guys dragging this tree back down the street from uh, uh, from the neighborhood uh, to make uh, one of the ancient monastic beers. So lots of interesting things along the way, um, kind of shots in the dark I had to take at times because certainly the record's not full, 
uh, ever, otherwise everybody I think would be doing this. And so having to take some artistic license and just hope for the best. Uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting in those, in those regards, uh, for sure. Yeah. I, I never would have thought about the journey that the IPA had to take to be kind of be authentic. That's, uh, yeah. that blew my mind. I, man, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> it was, it was just unbelievable. I mean, I, I still think about that process a lot, um, mainly because, I mean, it's just, and there were things again, even with that, that I had taken, I had to just take a shot because when it comes to temperatures, it depended on whether the beer hold was below waterline or above waterline, right? Cause mm -hmm. the temperature is going to be different if it's below the waterline or above. I looked at multiple schematics of shipping vessels from the East India trading company. Some had it below the waterline, some had it below, some, some above, some had it right at the waterline. So it's like, well, I guess I'll go with this one. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's, it's just interesting. Um, all those variables that could have changed the the beer outcome, you know? Yeah. It's such a shot in the dark. It's that's just wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so you're writing a book brewing in the ancient world. I can't wait to get a yep. copy. It's my Thanks. new fascination. I'm obsessed with brewing in the ancient world now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the readers can expect given your travels and experience doing research on the topic and what do you hope the beer industry takes from this book? Yeah, absolutely. So, and that, uh, with the book, it's been in the works for so many years and that's the nice thing. Now that I, I'm much more focused on the academic side. Um, now that I'm not with Avery anymore, I'm focusing more on getting this book done because a lot of my followers have been like, Jesus, you've been at this for years. When is it going to be done? So hopefully I can really crank through this and then, and get it done in the next couple of years. Cause the project has gotten so big that I need to now focus it a little bit. So the first book that comes out is gonna focus very intently on beer production uh, on the Roman boundaries, basically. And so a lot of coming back to my roots as a Romanist, um, I have been exploring a lot of what the Romans thought of beer. Obviously they write about beer, but a lot of those contexts are usually negative or they see it as very much kind of this thing that other people consume. And we have to remember that a lot of those literary sources too are from elite Romans that, you know, they're, you know, they're always going to have their pinky up and drinking a glass of wine, right? While they're, while they're, um, while they're, they're poo-pooing what the other peasants get to drink. And so I've been very curious about that. And so a lot of my travels as, as of late have been in Roman occupied Britain, Roman occupied Germany, um, doing a lot of work in Egypt as well, um, in, in Turkey, uh, and looking at what that interaction looked like, because, uh, though the upper crust of Rome uh, poo-pooed beer, they write about it, but they don't really seem to like it too much. We know that the Roman military consumed it in vast quantities. So the Romans did consume beer. And so that's what uh, the first book is going to really explore that and look at what that relationship looked like between the Romans and the boundary peoples, the barbarians, as they would have called them. Uh, but also what the production looked like. So we are talking probably about industrial scale brewing that uh, is, is preserved in some of the archeological record. And so uh, what I hope to do is recreate what that looked like um, and uh, explore what industrial brewing looked like, you know, in anywhere from the second century BC to the second to fourth century CE uh, and, uh, and give kind of a, a fuller picture. Uh, and, uh, I think that also what I'm hoping uh, the brewing world can get out of that is looking at kind of the roots of brewing. And that's kind of what the goal has been with the Ales of Antiquity series in general is we, uh, having worked at an, at an industrial facility, it's all about perfect quality, perfect consistency. And we, that's what, the, that's what the, the beer market calls for today. But are we right to just assume that the ancients didn't care about that? You know what I mean? Um, with my new class on food and alcohol in the ancient world that I'm teaching for the mechanical engineering program, day one, we talked about that, that there are a lot of assumptions that have been made about ancient food, that it must have been unpalatable, that it was purely for sustenance, that quality and flavor didn't matter. Well, I think that's just a very obtuse statement to make and that, um, no, they cared about what they were drinking. Um, and quality was very much key. Um, in Roman Britain, we have texts where they're actually saying, get beer from that guy because he's the good brewer or bring in more guys like the brewer Atrectus. He's a, he's a really good Cervesarius and this kind of thing. And so that's what the first um, book is going to explore. 
And then hopefully it will spawn into a lot of other projects. I do have a project going on ancient monastic brewing. Um, sure, many of uh, you and many of, of your viewers are familiar with Stan Hieronymus. Stan Hieronymus is a very good friend of mine and kind of my mentor in the beer writing world, um, wrote the book on hops uh, and he's written books on wheat and then brew like a monk. And um, he's really encouraged me to go further back than his book Brew Like a Monk did and look at ancient traditions. So I've been working on that. And then also Revolutionary America is something I hope to be working on in the near future as well. That's great. I hope that you have a whole series on ancient beers. I will read all of them. It's, Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's so fun to dive into and just kind of mind blowing, like how far it really back is. it goes. And it's astounding to me that it's basically as humans have grown, like beer's kind of always been there. <laughs> yep, absolutely. I mean, you said it, uh, that's exactly what I, I say often is just that I think beer makes us human. I mean, you look at every culture and it's there. And the beauty about beer is that it's a very social beverage. I think it, it really should be credited for driving a lot of humanity's achievements. I mean, as I've, I've, I think I've been on record saying a couple of times, I, it's going to make me sound like an alcoholic, but I like wine. I love wine and I love spirits. You know, I, I drink pretty much anything, but they all have their own mood, right? You know, wine is kind of an intimate thing with maybe one or a couple other people. When I sit back with a glass of scotch at night, I don't want to talk to anybody. But when it comes to beer, you know, you sit down with large quantities of people sometimes and have two, three, four of them. And it's a very social beverage. And I think it's really driven humanity in a lot of ways. And I think now's a great time to see more people hopefully getting interested in ancient food or beer history because we're not really all that different than they were. And I think getting at the, at the roots and at the core of humanity, look at the average guy and what they were doing. We focus too often on royalty. Don't get me wrong. They're super interesting. And I teach a lot of stuff on, on Roman imperial uh, entities and royalty. but. Uh, the average guy, I think, is just as interesting, if not more interesting, than those highfalutin elites from our past. Yeah, it's uh, easier to uh, kind of see yourself in them. <laughs> Absolutely. So for an upcoming episode, I'm focusing on yeast found in weird places. And rumor has it that you would love to resurrect ancient yeast from Antarctic ice cores. Can you share a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, it was uh, kind of this white whale question I got asked a couple of years ago of what is the craziest thing that you know you would want to do, and there are a lot of things on my list. But one thing that is uh, is of interest to me because I'm doing a lot of research right now. One of my topics for exploration in 2021 is really getting to the roots of where this all started because those questions get asked all the time. How old is beer? You know, did it come before bread? Was it really safer to drink than water? All these things. And so as I keep digging into it, you know, the, the record keeps getting pushed further and further back for how old these things are. But I wonder just really how old the living organism is that we use, you know, um, how far back do these sacro, uh, saccharomyces strains go, or even lactobacillus or pediococcus, I mean, bacteria that we know will ferment beer. I'm curious how far back it really does go. Um, and I'm just starting to dig into that. There's a little bit of literature that's been done purely on the scientific side, um, not looking at all at recreating foods. But um, I think it'd be really, I, I think it'd be really cool and a, a phenomenal curiosity to pull an ice core sample and see if we could reprop yeast that is tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years old, and see what it would do. Um, you know, we've been able in the modern era to find seeds from archaeological ruin that are 2000 years old and we can germinate them and boom, they create a plant and they've been laying dormant in an archeological site for 2000 years. And that's a seed that requires a lot of, you know, nurturing to come back to life. And I wonder when you, you know, how with these frozen yeast cells, if we can actually do that. Um, and, and what kind of sparked the idea was um, the re, what's called the Methuselah tree, which was a, a date palm that was actually, the seeds were found from Masada near the Dead Sea, uh, right on the skirt, outskirts of the Dead Sea that were about 2000 years old and they germinated it and planted it and boom, it, it popped up and it's producing dates now. And that's a 2000 year old seed. What about yeast? You know, another living organism. That is amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, I wish you luck 
on that venture. It's it sounds like an uphill battle, <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> it is. Yeah, I'm trying to make some connections. I'm I'm lucky to be working at a research institution. Um, our our dean of arts and sciences actually works on ice cores in Greenland, um, and he's a climatologist. And so um, I've got some connections. <laughs> we'll put it that way. We'll see how it turns out. Well, yeah. thank you so much for joining me. This was such an eye-opening chat, and uh, your research is really like expanding the boundaries of like what we even think beer can be. And it's just, it was so lovely to talk to you. I'm so happy that you were able to make time. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, no, thank you for having me on. And um, yeah, I, I think the future hopefully will be really exciting. Um, now that I did just launch a few weeks ago, the Beer Archaeologist LLC. So my my focus is going to be whole, holistically, I guess, on the education and research and recreation of these historic items. And I hope other people get interested and start doing it as well, because there's just, there's a lot out there. A lot yeah, of stones I to think be as uh, beer, beer is just getting more and more popular. So I think that there will be future beer archaeologists, hopefully listening to this podcast and being inspired. <laughs> I hope so too, exactly. Um, well, I'm looking forward to getting your book, Brewing in the Ancient World. And you guys can follow Travis on Instagram at The Beer Archaeologist to keep up to date on what he's doing. Thanks for listening to Brewing After Hours on the Believe Podcast Network. Find the show and lots of other great shows at Believe.com. If you're digging the show, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. You can also stream the Brewing After Hours podcast on your favorite preferred directory, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and Tone. A special thank you to Honus Honus, the lyrical genius behind my favorite band, Man Man, who created the song you hear at the beginning of my podcast. Be, be, be is like sunshine for the belly. Check the band's new album and more at manmanbands.com and at manmanbandband on Instagram. If you're looking for some more homebrewing tips, make sure to follow me on Instagram at flora underscore brewing or subscribe to Flora Brewing on YouTube. For ad-free brewing tutorials and reviews, plus a more one-on-one experience, become a Patreon member. It's just Patreon backslash Flora Brewing. I'll catch up with you guys next week. Thanks again for listening and a friendly reminder to always support your local craft breweries. Cheers! Drinking beer, it makes you happy, it makes me happy too, it's truly manna from the gods of Satan, let's raise a toast, drink it up, sip it down, gallop it, too sweet. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.